Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Catholic Talk Show. Today's going to be a very special episode. We have Jim Wahlberg joining us. He's going to be talking about how he overcame his addictions through faith in his family and also some of the new uh, exciting projects he has going on. Yeah, in addition to Jim's story, we're going to some, uh, share some stories of some saints and some very special people in the Catholic Church who also overcome addiction issues. And one of those saints that we call on as, as Catholics is St. Maximilian Kolbe. He is the patron of those who are rehabbing from addictions. So how about we begin with his intercession? St. Maximilian Kolbe, pray, pray for, for us. Pray for us. Really excited to be back with you guys. Uh, we got a, a Zoom conference going on here. I guess we're we're kind of like everybody else with shows these days. Uh, Jim, Jim, welcome to the show. Really excited to have you here today. Um, and and it's good to see you guys, Ryan and Father Rich. Nice seeing you. All. Thank yeah. you. I can't wait till we can actually get back together again in the studio and be able to shoot uh, shows and and have that you know consistency of celebrating the Eucharist together and praying together. Uh, but right now, you know, we're trying to do our very best with quarantine editions of the Catholic Talk Show. So we're very happy to have you. And Jim, I, I can't wait to hear your testimony, brother. I looked it up a little bit, but very excited to have you on the show. Thank you, Father. I'm really, really glad to be here. And I've heard so much about all of you guys. In fact, Father, I know a bunch of people that know you personally and uh, just speak the world of you. And uh, so I'm excited to be here. Thanks. Amen, brother. So, Jim, why don't you tell us a little bit about you know, who you are and your story um, and how you found yourself um, about to release these really excellent projects that um, can have a real impact on people. Okay, great. Well, I guess I'll start with the fact that uh, I'm the middle child of nine. Uh, I'm from Boston, Massachusetts. And, uh, you know, I grew up in a home. We were, we were Catholic, I think, more by tradition than by actual faith. I think we were keeping up with the Joneses. So, you know, you were baptized, you made your first Holy Communion, and then the rest of my siblings went on to make their confirmation. I, on the other hand, made my confirmation in state prison a few years late, uh, but I guess not too late because uh, miracles were happening in my life at that time. Uh, but I got started very young. Uh, I picked up a drink, I think the first time, well, I was maybe about eight or nine years old. The older kids in the neighborhood thought it would be funny to watch the little kid drink. I drank and nothing really happened. At least nothing physical happened to me. But I do remember that feeling of acceptance and being wanted and, and, and being a part of the, the crowd and being accepted by the older kids. Um, the next time I drank was a similar situation, uh, except this time uh, it was about Three years later, I think, I had stolen somebody's wallet out of their locker at the Y. And the Y was really an extension of my home. It was, it was they, the people there at the Y were my family. And, uh, and it's sort of an indication as to how far down I was already had slid, slid down the scale. Uh, I stole somebody's wallet and there was, there was 50 bucks in that wallet. And I brought that 50 bucks up to the hippies who lived up the street from me. And for that 50 bucks, I got a quarter Budweiser and a pack of cigarettes. And I remember... Not a good deal. 
Not it, a good it, deal. In 1975, <laughs> 76, probably cost yeah. 50 cents for both. Right? Yeah, you got rolled, Jim. Yeah, but <laughs> it, it, believe me, I continue to to be on the bad end of many deals for the rest of my life. <laughs> but anyways, so but I got my quarter Budweiser. I got my pack of cigarettes. I remember sort of being there, hanging with them, feeling part of the crowd. I remember seeing kids my own age kind of walking by and the way they looked at me, hanging with these older guys. And, um, you know, on that day, something did happen to me. I drank my quarter Budweiser and then I just couldn't seem to get enough. Everybody was kind of hanging on the side of the school. And these kids were 18 years old, 17, 18 years old. I was maybe 11. And uh, I remember running around, grabbing their beer, drinking as much as I could, as fast as I could. And uh, at a certain point, I left. I went home. In our, in our basement, we had like a little TV room. And uh, I was watching Creature Double Feature. And the room started to spin. And uh, I, got, I said, the only thing I knew is I needed to get out of the house. So I got up and as I went up the stairs and crossed over the threshold into the kitchen, I fell and threw up all over the kitchen floor. Now to my right, my mom was sitting at her perch. She had a chair and a, she had her phone. It was the first cell phone, right? It, was, it had a 500 foot cord on it. This thing could go all around the house. She could throw it at you. She could do whatever she needed to do with this thing. But she used to sit there and talk on the phone and smoke cigarettes. And, um, immediately a smell permeated the air and my mother was like what is that and she told she made my sister smell my vomit and it smelled like alcohol and of course she told my mom that uh it was booze and so you know my mother was screaming and yelling and where did you get it who gave you this you know you're a little kid and i just pointed in the direction of up the street where the hippies hung out they lived in the last house on our street right next to the school and, uh, and I gave them up instantly. My mother went up the street and she beat the head hippie up over his head with her shoe. And literally, I got my first little sentence. I got locked in my room for three days. It was the middle of the summer. And uh, I kind of feel like, you know, in the old days, if you caught a kid smoking cigarettes, the parents would make them smoke a whole pack and they'd get sick and they would never do that again. And I kind of think that my parents thought, I was so violently ill from the alcohol that I drank that I would never drink again. Um, and I really wish that was the case. But, you know, I, three days later, I got let out of my, out of my, uh, my detention, my punishment, whatever you'll, you want to call it. And I got outside, and within five minutes, I was back up at that hippie's house, ready to pay the price for telling on him as long as I could have some more. And from that point forward, they would use me to steal money from my home. You know, uh, they, they broke into their neighbor's house. They opened the window, they threw me in to, you know, go open the door, that kind of thing. And uh, so I was, you know, 11, 12 years old, driving around in stolen cars, now drinking and using on, on a more regular basis. Um, I guess it's important also to, to tell you that at that time in the city of Boston, we were, we were involved in the, in the forced integration of the public school system and it was called busing. And um, so from grade one to grade seven, I went to seven different schools. Now, I don't know, you know, I, I, I'm sure that it, it played a role in sort of who I was at the time and who I became, um, you know, being the new kid every year at a new school um, and then trying to find my place. And, and how I found my place was by acting out, by 
you know, jumping out the window and going outside and smoking pot or stealing from the school or doing it, whatever it was. I was always seeking attention and I was always seeking it by doing the wrong things. So what uh, in, in this ahead. particular, in this particular, excuse me, Jimmy, but in, yeah. in this particular setup from a family, I know you came from a big family. Yeah. Um, as you were doing all of this and you're sort of progressing in, 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 in your uh, trajectory, uh, did you have any brothers or did your father step in? I know your mom stepped in, but what was your family like in a sense when, when this was going on? Right. So what, you got to understand what those nine kids in my family. You name we, them all? I can't name them all. Okay. Deborah, Michelle, Arthur, Paul, me, Jim. Uh, Tracy, Bob, Donnie, and Mark. Now, did your mother always get the name right with association when she was yelling at you guys? Oh, did yeah. And everybody wrong? was called, a I was called James. The only person to ever call me James in my entire life was my mother. And only when I was in trouble, which was pretty much all the time. <laughs> um, but I think that, so, you know, my dad was a, was a drinker. Um, he was in my humble opinion, an alcoholic. Um, he worked hard and he drank hard. He had nine kids and, um, you know, he wasn't, I don't know, I, I guess he wasn't the happiest guy in the world. You know, uh, he had a lot of pressure. He had a lot of, he had bills. He had nine mouths to feed. Um, and so I think that my parents, so my dad was, he was a truck driver. He delivered school lunches. So in the morning at four o'clock in the morning, he would get up, he'd be out the door. My mom worked overnights in a bank building in, uh, in downtown Boston. And so there wasn't a lot of supervision. You know, there was in the daytime, my mom came home to sleep and my dad was gone to work. And then when he got home from work, he would generally take some sort of a nap because again, he was getting up at 430 in the morning. And so nine of us are all sort of trying to fight for that little bit of attention from them that they had. And I don't know how you can divide that up amongst nine kids. Um, and then, you know, we were struggling financially. We were, you know, we, I, I remember at, I think I was eight years old, my dad hit a number and not with the lottery, but with the local bookie. And he won enough to make a down payment on a house. Cause up until that point, all of 11 of us, nine kids and my parents were living in a, in a triple decker, a three-bedroom apartment in Boston. So it was not uncommon for two, three, four people to be sleeping in a bed sometimes. And so he hit, he hit that number, won enough money to make a down payment on a home. We moved to that neighborhood. And now we're, we're leaving a neighborhood where nobody had anything. And we were comfortable with that. And we all took care of each other. And we move into a neighborhood where it was more, you know, middle class, if you will. And people had cars, people had, you know, stuff. And we were wearing hand-me-downs. Most times we didn't own a vehicle. Many, many times we didn't have a washer or dryer that worked. I remember getting on the, on the bus with a green trash bag full of dirty laundry, all of us, and going to the laundromat to do laundry. We, we struggled financially my entire life. And I think up prior to moving into that home, I, did, I wasn't aware of what we didn't have because Nobody had anything and we were all in the same boat and we all took care of each other. And then you become keenly aware of what other people have when you are surrounded with people that 
I, I guess, had things. I, in hindsight, I think they probably weren't doing much better than us. But, um, you know, so like we, we were on food stamps. We had, I remember eating, you know, the USDA blocks of cheese and the cans of peanut butter and the things that government assistance provided to you. And that I remember all those things. I, I still yeah. have my baseball cards in the government cheese boxes, you know. Nice, yeah. And so we, so, you know, like we lived in a neighborhood where all the older kids worked at the corner store. Right. And I remember my dad would say, you know, go to the store, get milk, bread and whatever. And he would hand me food stamps and I would walk up to the store and I would have to wait and wait and wait and wait until the kid, the teenage kid wasn't at the register anymore. When the old older guy that owned the store, uh, he was a, a Greek immigrant. When he went to the register, then I would go and pay for the stuff. I was embarrassed and ashamed of our circumstances that had nothing to do with me. They weren't, it wasn't, it had nothing to do with me that we needed assistance. It didn't mean that we were, you know, on a free ride. Both of my parents worked, but with nine kids, you're going to need help. Right. And so there was a lot of shame and a lot of guilt that sort of uh, permeated throughout my life as a result of, of uh, I think mostly my own making, you know, I just somehow it got in my mind that that made us less than everybody else. And, um, and so, you know, as my, my shame and my sort of feeling less than uh, increased, I think my use and abuse of drugs and alcohol increased as well. It made me feel a different way than I felt about myself. And that's, you know, that's looking back at the time. I didn't know I was trying to feel a different way. I thought I just, this stuff made me feel fantastic. That's all that mattered. Right. And, um, and I didn't have an off switch. You know, I picked up one, I was going to pick up another. I'll tell you. So I went to seven different schools. I remember the seventh grade ended and I was going to the Martin Luther King school in in Roxbury, which is a part of the inner city in Boston. And, um, the school year ended and I went home and it was the very first Friday night. So I'm, I think 12 years old when you finish the seventh grade. Um, the very first night of the summer, my dad reminded us all the rule in this house is when the street lights come on, you better be in this house or don't bother coming home. And I remember going out that Friday night and, you know, I, when I think about now, a 12 year old, like drinking and doing these smoking cigarettes and stealing and doing all this stuff. And I look at a 12 year old, it's crazy for me to, to think that that was me at that age. I had a whole bunch of friends that were doing the same stuff. They were all sort of living the same kind of life I was living. Um, you know, I remember we were all out drinking and the streetlight came on and I looked at it and I said, I'm not going to make it. And I just stayed out and I just, I just didn't go home. And that started a pattern of me just not, you know, um, I would run away, right? I would run away from home. So the first few times, I think you can call it, running away because I ran away and people were actually looking for me to bring me back home. After a certain amount of times of running away, they just, they weren't going to come looking for me anymore. It was like, we got these other eight kids. They're all trying to go along with the program. This guy is just, he's crazy. And I'll be honest with you. I thought I was crazy too. Jim, you would know? you say that, you know, out of your brothers and sisters, were 
Was this a similar experience that your brothers and sisters had, or was this something unique some, to you? So most people in my family have gotten in some trouble. Um, I think I, I, my older sister who passed away now just about six months ago, my sister Michelle, oh. uh, had a lot that. of, yeah, thank you very much. She had a lot of trouble in her life. Um, she was, her behavior was very similar. She would run away. She would, uh, you know, she was, she got arrested, things like that. Me, I think that a lot of what was happening with my siblings was happening with a lot of people in that environment, in that neighborhood, in that, in the sort of the city that we lived in. But I was always that guy that was taking it just a little further than everybody else. So like I said, I hung around with a bunch of young kids that were all, they were all drinking and getting high too. But at a certain point they knew to go home, right? They, they like, they didn't just put it all on the line to continue to drink and get high. I put everything on the line so that I could continue to just to have more, right? Whatever I was in search of, uh, whatever that feeling was that I was looking for, I know now hindsight, you know, I, that hole, the only hole, the only thing that was going to fill that hole was God, yeah. right? Jesus Christ was the only thing that was going to fill that hole. But I had no idea of that. My understanding of God when I was a kid was he's going to get you. That's all I, that's the understanding. That was the, that was the faith that I was brought up in, right? It, there was consequences no, yeah. that, you know, <clears throat> and discipline and, and yeah, nobody told me that Jesus died for my sins. Nobody told me that, that I was loved unconditionally and that God loved me. I didn't, I never heard that. And maybe if they were saying it, I, I wasn't hearing it because I was yeah. just a little crazy. You know? And I'll tell you, Jim, like there's, there's people that even use me to discipline kids too. They'll, they'll yeah. bring in their kids, father, you're not going to believe what he, what he did, you know? And, and they kind of read me the list of his, the misbehavior. Right. And then I always kind of split away. We go for a walk and we talk about it. It was a funny story of a, a good priest friend of mine, Father John Tetlow, and the mother did this to, and, and said, Father, you're not going to believe he got a tattoo all over his back. And he, he lifted up and he's got this big crucifix of Jesus on his back. And yeah. Father John goes, it's a nice looking tattoo, young man. <laughs> it's a good yeah. looking tattoo. She well, was so I, disappointed she they didn't rid of the riot act, you know. But Jimmy, I, I got I to tell you, man, I, I really relate to your, your testimony so far and, and what you're sharing because – for me, it was, I was like 11, 12 years old when one of my friends that I played basketball with, he said, like, here's some, here's some stuff that you could sell, Richie. You know a lot of people. You talk with everybody. Sell this. Yeah. And it was, a, it was a crack rock. And now, like you said, looking at like an 11-year-old, a 12-year-old, like, it's just, it's hard to compute. But it's like that stand-by-me adolescent mentality. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you're, you're just kind of, the whole world is, is out there. And you've got to courageously go out and, and, and find your way. And it sounds like, I mean, you went at it alone for a while until you started really feeling this kind of out of control place. Yeah, what was that like for you? Well, I'll tell you. I, so I, I started to develop a relationship with the local police station right away. They, they knew me by my first name. My nickname is Jimbo. And so they heard the name Jimbo. They didn't have to look far. They knew where I was. And I was the kind of guy that, like, I can remember a friend of mine uh, had a party. His parents went away for the weekend. And most times I wouldn't get invited to a party because I was that guy. I was so much trouble, you know? Um, but I remember like 500 people showed up to his house for a party, the whole neighborhood with kids everywhere. And they were all just, you know, like 
13, 14, 15, whatever. And I remember the cops came. 499 kids got away. I was the guy that was standing there, you know, intoxicated. <laughs> You're holding the bag for 500 kids. And I'm like, don't you know who I think I am? You know, <laughs> like it was, it, that's the guy I was. And, you know, I was also the guy that, um, you would have a party and I would come to your house and I would, I would take things from you. Right. And, uh, and I don't know, it was like the line from right and wrong. As soon as I had my drink, the line between right and wrong would disappear from me, you know? And, um, and so, you know, I, I, I developed a really bad reputation at a very young age. Now, mind you, a lot of this time I'm homeless. I'm, I'm a, a ward of the state at this time. I'm committed to the Department of Youth Services, which means because I got arrested a bunch of times and my family couldn't handle me anymore, now the state was in charge of making decisions about my life. So my, my status at that time was I was either homeless in some kind of a locked facility for juveniles or in a group home, a halfway house, a foster home, wherever it was, I just wasn't allowed to go back home. And so, you know, I would continuously find the people, the young kids that were, you know, water seeks its own level. You yeah. know, I would find, I would like a magnet. I'd be walking down the street in a brand new neighborhood, living in some family's home that people I don't even know. I'd be living in their home. I'd be there five minutes and I would assess the area and I would find out who the kids were that I needed to be hanging with. Right. And the kids that were doing the kind of things that I like to do. And, um, you know, in in juvenile detention, I picked up a nickname. Uh, my last name is Wahlberg. They called me Walpole. Walpole is the name of the state prison in Massachusetts. And that was my nickname. And, you know, I thought it was funny. And I was like, no, you know, when I when I'm 17, I'm going to join the army, get a job. I'm going to change my life. I'm not going to continue with the way I'm going. But I think I was 17, maybe five minutes, and I started getting arrested. And what they, what, the way the court system works is, you know, I was getting arrested for a kind of minor infractions, right, if you will. And they were just stacking them on top of each other, stacking them on top of each other. Just give me enough rope to hang myself until finally I got arrested uh, for an armed robbery. And what that amounted to was me and a couple of my buddies were out at, you know, three o'clock in the morning and we hung at a train station. That was our spot. And there was a guy there and he missed the last train and we couldn't figure out what is he doing in our train station? Like we own this train station. Why is he here? And we need to have a talk with him. And we ended up, we assaulted this poor guy and, uh, and he got beat up pretty bad. The only thing he could remember out of the whole, uh, the whole event was hearing the name Jimbo. And that's all he needed, right? Mm. Because the police knew me very well. And I got arrested and I was 17 years old and I got sentenced to state prison. And, uh, you know, I mean. Were you I'm in contact with your parents at this point? So I would be in contact with my parents from time to time. So I would be, there were periods in this, in this time up until I became 17 years old where it appeared that I was doing well. Right. So like I would be in a, a I, I remember I was living in a in a foster home and in, uh, in outside of Boston, Massachusetts. I was living with a Jehovah Witness family 
Um, they were really nice people. They were very kind to me. They didn't try to, they weren't, uh, the parents were Jehovah Witness. I don't even think they were really pressing the kids so much, um, but they were kind to me. They were good to me. And, uh, and it appeared that I was doing well. What really, what that meant was, is I wasn't really getting caught doing anything. I was still, I was still drinking. I was still smoking marijuana. I was still, you know, hanging with the wrong crowd. But for a period of time, I didn't get arrested. I didn't get caught stealing anything. I didn't, you know, throw up on the kitchen floor, if you will. And so it appeared that I was doing well. And so, you know, like I remember I got invited home for Christmas. And I was probably maybe 15 years old. And so I, I go home for Christmas. And I'll tell you, I remember it like it was yesterday. It was, the weather was fantastic. It was Christmas Eve. And it was the kind of weather, I grew up wearing shorts in the wintertime in Boston, right? Shorts and a pair of boots. I wore one glove and my buddy wore the other glove. And we were out there drinking beer. And it was evening time and the snow was coming down. It was beautiful. Everything was beautiful. And then I slipped over that, what I, that invisible line of, of sort of blacking out. Right. And then I remember later on that night going home now Christmas day. And as I'm walking up the street, I see the police in front of my house and they're there because I had stolen somebody's belongings at a Christmas party earlier that night in a complete blackout. I just walked in and sat down and, you know, and the thing is, is when I walk into a place in my neighborhood, every eyeball is on me, right? As everybody knows, I'm trouble. I, everybody knows I can't be trusted and everybody knows that there's a pretty good chance I'm going to take something that doesn't belong to me or I'm going to start some kind of a fight. And so, so you, you are going to, I mean, I'm presuming that you're hitting bottom pretty soon from at this point, you know, at 17. And I think that's part of what your book that is coming out really soon, uh, The Big Hustle, is about is how you hit that bottom and how you found your way back up. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that experience and, you know, what's going to be in this book, The Big Hustle. Okay, so I, I do five years on, the, on a three to five year sentence. I do every day of my sentence. I do most of that time in the hole, right? I was just constantly seeking the approval of others that entire time. I get out right from the hole, right from maximum security state prison in the hole out to the streets. And the first thing I do is pick up a drink. The second I get out and I'm actually, this is the first time I'm actually old enough to drink legally. And for six months I was out. And for that six months I drank and ingested as much as I could humanly possibly get into me. And then I wake up in the police station and I'm, I got, I'm covered with blood and I have no idea why I'm there. And I'd love to say that that's the first time that's ever happened to me, but it's happened to me many times. And um, come to find out, I robbed a cop's house and he came home on a coffee break while I was in his house. And so that blood that was all over me was mine. And I go to court and they want to they give me a life sentence for house invasion. And it was the police officer that intervened on my behalf and said, the kid's a mess. I'm happy with the beating I gave him. You know, like he doesn't have to go to prison for life. I end up with a six to nine year prison sentence. And the only thing I knew is I didn't want to do nine years because if I do nine years, I'm going to be older than 30 when I get out and that's prehistoric, right? And so 
I, I'm, I'm there and I start to try to do things to create the illusion that I'm trying to do better. I'm trying to live a different way. I'm trying to be rehabilitated. And so I start going to self-help groups and, and meetings. And then I couldn't just go to the meetings. I had to run the meetings. So I was in charge of the meetings. And then I was approached by the Catholic priest. And he said, hey, Jim, I'm looking for a custodian for the chapel. Um, would you be interested in the job? And immediately I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be great. I'll get access to the phone. I'll get, he smokes cigarettes, you know, like I'm going to hustle this guy. And um, so I take the job, maybe after the first or second week, he says, listen, I'm going to need you to come and clean Saturday night. So you might as well come to the, you might as well come to mass, right? And he was hustling me. He was trying to bring me home and I didn't see it. I thought I was hustling him. And so I started going back to mass. And then I think I was working from about a month. He says to me, Jim, we have a very special guest coming to this prison in two weeks. And I'm like, oh, that's great, Father. Who is it? And he says, Mother Teresa is coming to this prison. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. Who's Mother Teresa? Like, I didn't know who Mother Teresa was. That's the kind of life I lived, right? At that point, she was as famous as any, you know, any actor, any uh, president, leader of any country. And so I, I didn't really know who she was, but the day came when she came walking into the prison. And, uh, and that day uh, is the day that I can, I, can, I, I can specifically pick out that day as the turning point in my life. Before um, we get there, yeah. we've got to share some, a word from our sponsors and I cannot wait to hear this story about you meeting Mother Teresa for the first time. We are most grateful for our sponsors. And I have to first start with Hallow. Hallow is the number one Catholic meditation and guided prayer application in the App Store today. Be sure to visit Hallow because when you do, you'll see all sorts of prayer and meditation guided efforts that they have put together in a beautiful and most attractive way from Taze to Lexio Divina to rosary and to daily gospel reflections and so much more. This is a beautiful application that you should definitely have on your phone. And if you utilize this platform, you will truly be able to advance in not only your understanding of the Catholic tradition of prayer, but be able to cultivate that in your own practice uniquely to you. This number one Catholic meditation and prayer app is specifically out there for you to grow in your faith. We are so grateful for their work. We are so grateful for their sponsorship. And you should take a moment and check them out because they are truly at the very forefront of technological advancement and the new evangelization. So check out Hallow Catholic Meditations and Prayer App today. We want to tell you about our sponsor, Exodus 90. Exodus 90 is 90 days of prayer and asceticism, cold showers and devout prayer moving through the book of Exodus so that men could find greater freedom in Christ. This program is a tremendous program that over 20,000 men have already gone through, and you should consider becoming the very next member in this very powerful movement. Please consider to join Exodus 90 now. Check them out. You will not regret it. Ave Maria University, our sponsor, is an institution of higher learning in the Catholic tradition, and one that is very, very dear to me, as I am an alumnus and a graduate of 2008 from the new campus. We were part of the first graduating class, and it is 
awesome to see how much Ave Maria University has grown and has become not only the youngest Catholic institution, but one of the most powerful, driven in academics and faith. It is a university that appeals to all. And we'd like you to consider becoming a student at Ave Maria University, or if you know someone that is of age that may be looking at colleges and universities around the country, be sure to tell them about Ave Maria. There are over 30 majors. There's programs undergrad as well as postgrad, all the way up to PhDs in theology. You do not want to miss a chance to attend this university. It is surrounded by the oratory, this beautiful church in the middle of Ave Maria town, just 30 miles away from Naples and the beautiful beaches. It's in Southwest Florida. So the weather is beautiful, but the greatest thing and the most beautiful thing about the university is the community. The community life is a place where young people find belonging and most importantly, encounter Christ in the beautiful tradition of the Catholic faith. So check out Ave Maria university today. You won't regret it. All right, and magically we're back in this studio from the other studio. So thank you for those uh, sponsor um, messages there, Padre. Well done. Why don't you pick that story up back from there? Okay. So the day comes, and I can see I'm walking through the this uh, this prison, the maximum security state prison in Concord, Massachusetts, <clears throat> and I can see a large group of people coming towards me. And I see people, you know, it's an unusual group of people. There's, you know, guys in business suits. And then I see a space open up a little bit. And I see this little teeny person in the middle of them all. And as she got closer, I noticed that the sweater she had on looked like it was 100 years old. And the sandals she had on looked like they were 200 years old. And then I remember specifically seeing in her pockets money, cash money. I hadn't seen cash money. I've been in prison for two years. I hadn't seen money in, a, in two years. And, um, and I just remember seeing just the kindness and the gentleness of her face. And then it came time for the, the mass that we were having uh, in her honor. And the, the cardinal was there. And I was part of the procession. And I remember as we processed into the gym where they had the mass up on the stage, you know, the cardinal was there. He had his, his big fancy hat on. He had his big fancy chair and then he had a big fancy chair for mother Teresa and he he was beckoning her to come and she refused to go and instead she stayed on the floor with the inmates on her knees the entire time until it was time for her to go and speak and I can tell you that I, I couldn't take my eyes off her I just kept looking at her and you know hindsight I was looking at the face of Christ that's what I was seeing, right? And the time came for her to go and to speak. And she went up and she, and she spoke words of, of love and forgiveness and mercy. And, and everything she said was, was geared towards us, the inmates. And that we were, we were more than what brought us here. And that nothing was too big for God. And um, I mean, brothers, that, that day absolutely changed my life. That day I went back to Father Freitas, Father Jim Freitas, and I said, Father, I want to know more about my faith. I want to I know more about God. I want to know more about Jesus Christ. And literally the next day I started preparing to make my confirmation. As I... Yeah, I mean, you, as you I... Kinda, you you kind of remember, you, you know, it's funny how you go through the motions, how our faith, people can go through the motions and go to yep. church and make sure. the sign of the cross. And then 
it's all there to facilitate an encounter at the altar with, with our mm-hmm. Lord and the Eucharist. And yet yeah. somehow we, we as a church kind of forget that and, and move into different, uh, you know, areas of Catholicism, including ritualistic you right. know, behavior and things like that. But, but it's the encounter that you have with Christ that introduces you to him, that through the Holy Spirit in this encounter, mm-hmm. you begin to, basically do the, basically look into the same religion you were growing up with but with different set of eyes so true i mean i think for really for the first time i felt i felt i felt the love of god i felt it was a different it was the, the entire experience um it sort of started to melt away the ice that was my heart yeah. Right. And it started yeah. just a little bit at a time, but I knew there was sort of a, uh, a profound experience that made me want to immediately take some action. Right. Um, and so I started to take that action. And as I started to take that action, as I started to go through the preparation to make my confirmation with Father Jim Freitas, things started to happen. I started, I got moved from that prison to another prison, less of security. And he passed me off to the priest there. And then that priest continued to make, help me prepare. And then I got moved to even lower security. See, these things were evidence that, that, that God was working in my life. That because I turned towards him, things were getting better. I needed evidence. I needed tangible evidence. I never went to lesser security. I went to my previous experience at state prison was I went to maximum security state prison. And there I stayed for five years. I never went anywhere else. I was constantly in the hole. And now I'm all the way down to minimum security. And I remember I was now time for me to make my confirmation. And, uh, and I called my mom who had made an absolute promise to herself that she would never visit me in prison again, because during the first five years, she visited me once and it wasn't a good experience for her. She didn't recognize me as her own child. And, um, I called her and I said, mom, I'm going to make my confirmation and it would really be great if you could be here, you know? And she was like, well, I don't know. I'm not sure. I don't, I don't know if I can do that. And ultimately she decided to come. And, um, you know, my mom now is almost 80 years old. She has little dementia. She's not well health wise. Um, but every time we talk, she'll go back to that day. She'll go back to that day and she'll say, she won't remember specifically what that day was. She'll say, I remember that day. I remember the day that you were different, that I could tell that you were different and that and you were my son and that you were going to be okay. And she, she actually wrote a letter to the parole board, which I saw maybe a, a six months later. See, my mother's the lady that would go to court and say, lock him up, right? She had no problem. And it was, not just me other brothers and sisters. She went to court and said, Your Honor, they did it. Lock him up. They're, he's a danger to himself and to others. And uh, my mother wrote a, a letter to the parole board. And essentially what she said was, before you stands a man of God. And it's okay. You can send him home now because he's not the person that you locked up. He's the person he was supposed to be. And, uh, and I remember the parole board, you know, I gave them an old, the old easy does it keep it simple. I'm all better now. And the guy, he padded my file and he said, listen, I'm not sure about any of what anybody has said, including your mom, but this is your file. We know who you are. 
but you haven't gotten any trouble since you've been here this time. So we're going to let you go and we'll see you when you get back. How many years have you served at that point? At that point, I, I did five, got out, came back and now I was, had been back in for three. So that was my eighth year in state adult prison. And, um, you know, I, they gave me a parole and, you know, I'd love to say that, uh, I got out and everything was fantastic. Things were a lot better. I started to, we started this, this interview off with, you know, my recovery at my faith and my family. And really where my family comes into it now is, is me earning back their trust, earning back their respect, earning back, uh, Really, I don't, I don't think they ever stop loving me. I, I think it's kind of illegal to do that to your own, right? But there was definitely a distance. And, and the more distance, the better, right? That was the way it was. So, um, but, you know, ultimately, I was welcome in everybody's home. Ultimately, I could have the key to everybody's home. Ultimately, I was invited to everything there was. I was part of my family again. But I had to earn that back because... I, heard, I had hurt everybody in my family. I had taken things from everybody in my family. I had brought shame to everybody in my family, you know? And so um, I was, now I'm clean and sober. I'm out and um, sort of, I start to drift away again from my faith, right? And I start to focus on sort of, I was given permission to create my own conception of God, which is kind of a scary thought for me right? Because if you leave it up to me to create my own conception of God, he's just going to co-sign all my crap, right? I'm not going to need the sacrament. I'm not going to need the sacraments. I'm not going to need to go to confess. I'm not going to need to, I'm not going to need to do any of that. I'm not going to need the Eucharist. I'm just going to be like, Hey, I'm sorry. I, you know, I did wrong. See you later. And I would be fine. And what ended up happening was, is that hole inside of me that, that was filled with Christ started to then start to be empty again. And so I was clean and sober. I was, you know, I, I got married. I had, I have three beautiful children. You know, I was, I had stuff, but I had nothing going on inside. And I got to a point again where um, I was in danger of losing everything because of, of that emptiness, because I had no relationship with Christ. Hmm. And so, um, you know, I, we moved to Florida and um so we, so real quick you yep. so this this these priests that help you in your faith yep. you know when you know i'm kind of familiar with aa and a lot of how the programs yep. work they're they're a lot different than the church's structure they're much more driven by the community and and the, they're sort of the guidelines of how the the program works and so you were probably immersed with a lot of friendships that were fruitful and Absolutely. yet and yet you have this, you have the beginning stages, which were, you know, your faith. And, and so the integration of your faith with, with all of that is really where this thing stalled. Is that kind of like what you're, yeah, you're saying? I mean, I, I think that, so I have this sort of, I'm getting this message that I can create my own conception of God. Right. And that, and I'm hearing a lot of people, you know, I'm, I'm growing up in, this is Boston, right? So most of the yeah. people around me, are, are, are Catholic people, right, mm. that are in these meetings and, and have struggled with their faith and have struggled. And then we're also in the, in the, in the middle of 
the crisis within the church in Boston. Yeah. We're ground zero, right? Yeah. So real easy to just kind of walk away, right? Yeah. It was real easy to just walk away and just, and just uh, you know, yeah. like that cardinal was, that was there in the prison yeah. with Mother Teresa was the cardinal that ultimately yeah. let the stuff happen and was ended up was you know got sent to rome and 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 left in a veil of you know of controversy and shame and so all that was going on and i kind of you know i went off and i created my own conception of god and i was i was living a life uh, a material life right i just wanted stuff and i wanted to keep up with the joneses and you know i wanted to and that's how i was showing people that i was doing good right if you looked at me I looked good. I sounded good. I lived in a nice house. I had a nice car. I had a beautiful family. From, from the outside, everything looked good. But this is not an outside job. This is an inside job. And inside, I felt that loneliness start to return. I felt that mm -hmm. the shame to start starting to return. I felt the pain of, of you know, who I was start to return. And, uh, and, you know, at a certain point, but I was able to always say, yeah, but I'm doing much better than I used to be, right? Yeah, but those like, are deep wounds that yeah, still, they're not fully right. healed. Yeah, I mean, they're, right. they're, it sounds, you know, they're covered, they're but Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it sounds a lot like when you were a kid and you were looking for this approval from others that even though your sobriety was there, you know, that, 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 that these, these things still plagued you and that there was yeah, deep longing that's not satisfied. Absolutely. Right? I mean, you know, so... Here I am, I'm, I'm, I'm in maximum security state prison, right? And I remember this so vividly, you know, like I knew, I grew up in juvenile detention. I grew up in the streets. I knew a lot of the people that were in this prison with me. And, you know, the prison is very segregated, right? So Italian guys sit over there, Irish guys sit over there, black guys from this neighborhood over here, Spanish guys over here. And I remember walking through this chow hall and knowing somebody pretty much at every table and stopping to say hi. And at every table, I was a different person. At every table, I was who they wanted me to be, not who I thought I was. Because right. to be quite honest with you, I had no idea who I was. And until I, until I experienced my faith, until I experienced God's mercy, I just wasn't aware. So now I'm aware, but now I'm still walking away, right? Now I know better and I'm walking away, which hurts more, I think, right? And, and it's, it's new kind of wounds, right? And yeah, so- there, Father Rich, yeah. that reminds me of a book. We've talked about it before. Um, but the, the, the spring, you know, where it talks about the seasons of your life with Christ. And how when you first have that conversion, it's all springtime. It's very easy. It's, it's everything comes to you easy because it's all new. It's like just falling in love for the first time. But then, but then the summer comes and it gets hot and it gets heavy and oppressive. And so many people think that once they have this conversion or that they find God, that it's, you know, it's that it's put your halo on now and it's straight to heaven. And typically it's not very much like that at all. It's, it's a race. It's a marathon. And when you had that conversion after that initial honeymoon period, there's a lot of difficulty in maintaining that faith and living that faith. Um, 
but that's um, by that's mother. Absolutely, um, that's absolutely right. It's Cachita Cabrera. Cachita Cabrera. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the book that you're that you're referencing. And it's very, very true. And I think it's so relatable, Jimmy, the way you're, the way you're sharing. That's it right there. Yeah. That's it. I had in my desk. Yeah. It's a, it's, that's a phenomenal resource uh, spiritually. Um, and, it, and it is. It's absolutely, it's absolutely powerful to consider that you have this encounter with God, very, very authentic encounter with God. And it was very evident because, like you said, your heart turned from ice and now you have a heart of flesh and now you're mm-hmm. loving again. You feel loved. And you're not looking for affirmation outside of God. You're not looking at you're look you're not looking at the people in the in the different groups inside maximum security prison. You're you're actually drawing that from God. And then what happens? And I've seen this even in my own life. And it's in the scriptures where it says like where the dog returns to its vomit. You know, and and it's like this whole it's this whole sense of actually walking away, conscious of the fact that you're deliberately making this choice to live in a worldly manner. And when you step away from God, that wound is even more intense than when you're growing up as an adolescent trying to figure out your way. And that can create such a wall of shame and guilt and darkness that sometimes you can get locked in that place mm. for a long time. So what was your like, Jimmy, like coming back out of, out of that place, how did you get there? And how did you come back to God, especially after such a break? So, you know, I was, I was, clean and sober, uh, 12 years. And my wife decided we're going to move to Florida. So I was living in Boston. I was living in the neighborhood I grew up in. I was living in the neighborhood. I did all my dirt in. And, and then I was also sort of living this, this new life in the same, in the same place. And so my wife decided we're going to move. And I decided I wasn't going to do any better that I love my wife. And I wasn't going to do better than her and my children. I was just going to go wherever she told me to go, do whatever she told me to do. And I also felt because of the 12-step programs that I was involved in, I felt like I could go anywhere. I could do, I could go places because I could connect with people very easily. And so as we started to go look at homes and start to do those things, going back and forth from Florida, I started checking in on meetings and I would raise my hand and I started to meet people and I started to connect. And so ultimately we did build a home. We moved to Florida and um, a little by slowly, I started to start to think I could reinvent myself, right? Now I'm not in the neighborhood I grew up in. Now people don't know who I used to be, right? They just know what I present to them. I can be anybody I want to be now. I can create this illusion of, of who I used to be. And um, I don't know if I was physically thinking I'm going to drink again. But I was definitely thinking I didn't need to go to these meetings anymore. And for me, I know that that's usually the beginning of the end. And so um, I remember I was in a meeting and I was thinking, this is it. This is my last one. And at the end of the meeting, a woman came up to me and she said some outrageous thing. I don't even remember what she said, but it was so funny that I had to come back the next day. And I know now today that even though it was an outrageous thing, whatever she said to me, that was God. God put her in my path. He said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come to you with, with humor. Whatever I got to do to be in your life, for you to accept me and to want to be closer to me, I'm going to do it. And so she, whatever she said was so funny that I had to come back the next day to hear what she was going to say the next day. And I just kind of got over that hump. And, um, and then, you know, 
my wife, uh, we started, we, you know, through this time we had, we were going to church. And I think really by the time I, I got to Florida, I was now driving my family to church. I would drop them off and go home, which is, is a thing that, uh, when I think about that now, it, it hurts me deeply. Um, but because I have so many feelings about being robbed of that as a child, right? Like there was an opportunity for me to be introduced to a loving God and, and, a, and a merciful God and to know that Jesus died for my sins. Maybe things would have been different. Maybe they wouldn't. I don't know. But I feel like I got robbed of that as a child. And, um, and so dropping my family off to church and going home to watch football. When I think about that now, and, I, and when I, I like, it, it, it really hurts me. But ultimately my wife went on a, uh, she went on a, a retreat and, uh, and uh, it was one bente tre, right? So John 23, she went on that retreat and she came home and she had a conversion or a reversion, if you will, of, of epic proportions. But unlike anything else that my wife had ever done in her life, she didn't come home and say, okay, your turn, right? Because my wife was, she, she loved to tell me what to do, right? And she's really good at it and I appreciate it. She's always led me in the right direction. But instead, what she did was she came home and she was more loving. She was more kind. She was more patient. She was more generous and she was more forgiving, right? Because my wife, we would argue, my wife would get mad and she could stay mad. Me, I'd get over it. I would accept all responsibility. Whatever happened was my fault. Let's move on. She would stay mad. And, uh, but, you know, her ice was melted away. And so I was attracted to that, right? That's what, it wasn't, it wasn't this. It was the way she carried herself and the way, she, the kindness that she showed me. And so but after a while, she just starts suggesting to me that maybe I should go on a retreat too. And I was like, yeah, nah, I'm good. I have a God of my own understanding. I'm, I'm all set. And she continued to nudge and nudge. And um, at a certain point, my daughter came to me. And she was 12 years old at the time. This was just over 10 years ago. And she said to me, Daddy, I want you to go on that retreat. I want you to know Jesus. I want you to be happy, mm -hmm. right? Because... I was unhappy and only the people that loved me the most knew it. They were the, they were the ones that saw me suffering in silence and maybe, and not always in silence, yelling and screaming was, well, I was famous for that. Right. But they, but outside I was like, you know, Joe neighbor, great guy, nice, you know, good dad, all these things. When ultimately none of those things were really true. I was broken. And, um, and so, when my daughter came and said those words to me, I couldn't say no to her, right? How can I say no to her? How can you say no to those words, right? I want you to be happy, which means you are not happy, right? You are not happy and I, you need to do something about that. And so I agreed to go on the retreat, which was like another a week later or two weeks later. Um, but instantly my thought was I did 10 years in prison. I can do a weekend with these idiots, right? I'm already sort of, you know, doing the Heisman, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep these guys at arm's length. I'm going to go there. I'm going to get this, got to get through the weekend. I'm going to make everybody at home happy, and I'm going to go about my business. But God had another plan, and I went to that retreat. I wish I had my hooded sweatshirt on because my, 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 uh, my retreat brothers still laugh about it. 
I walked into that retreat with my hood on, right? Arms folded, just, right? Just letting them know without saying anything. Back up. Don't, don't get up on me. And then I went on an Emmaus retreat. And as the weekend started to unfold, um, Christ revealed himself to me again, right? And, uh, and really knocked me to my knees, right? Like, it was, uh, it, was, it, it was, to say it was profound is an understatement. It knocked me to my knees. And at the end of the weekend, I went home and I, I think I cried for like three days. I just like, and everywhere I went, everywhere I went, I was seeing signs, right? So if I'm, I'm driving down the street, I look at the truck in front of me and in the dirt, it says, God loves you, right? And I see it when I'm sure it was there many times before, but I didn't see it. And then I was asked to serve on a retreat. I was, I was asked to spend an hour with the Blessed Sacrament um, in perpetual adoration. And I remember an hour was over and nobody came. And so I stayed for the second hour. And then somebody came and I left, got in my car and I was driving home and I could hear propellers of an airplane. And I look up and riding across the sky, the sky is, is one of those planes that writes across the sky. God loves you. Like it was... It was everywhere and it was, and it was constant. Now, you were talking about that, that book, uh, Ryan, and you were talking about having an, an encounter with Christ and then thinking, I'm all set now, right? Mm -hmm. See, I know now after this retreat, I know that I've had other experiences, right? And I know that, yes, God loves me. And yes, God wants what? only what's best for me, right? But God is gonna also would like to hand me a pick and a shovel, right? And say, you got to do the work, right? I'm going to love you. I'm going to be here. I'm gonna, but you got to do the work. And in order for me to have a relationship with Jesus, I have to put work into that relationship. I am lazy and undisciplined by nature, okay? I do not want to do anything, Right, That's I want so many people experience that. I want to sit on my couch, right, and I want God to make everything okay, right, and it don't work that way, right. If I don't put forth effort to have this relationship with Jesus, then I'm not going to have this relationship with Jesus. I'm going to coast until I get to a place where I'm not looking at, I'm not looking to to Christ saying, "What an amazing job you've done with this scoundrel." I'm looking and I'm saying, "What a great job I did," right. And once I start thinking I'm responsible for any of this, that's when it all starts to fall apart. And so I need to do work. And, and the work that I need to do is, is that I need to be of service, right? I need, you know, we hear in church, time, treasure, and talents, right? I need to be of service to others, right? That's where I find joy. I need to be, uh, you know, I went on that retreat and then for the next 10 years, I've been serving on that retreat right? And, and, and bringing other men to the foot of that cross, right? And watching Jesus do what Jesus does, right? And watching other hearts melt. And, uh, and then I was also introduced to, uh, to Communita Chinakalo, which I, I, I know Father's very familiar yeah. with. And, um, and, and it, just, it just took it to that next level mm -hmm. for me, right? I, yeah. I got around some amazing priests and I got around some amazing people and I saw God's handiwork 
everywhere. Yeah, yeah it's it's you so know, cool it's, that you mentioned that, you know, you had that experience in front of the Blessed Sacrament. I know Ryan Delacrosse, that's, you know, his conversion, very similar to that. My conversion, very similar to that. Uh, Father Rich, very similar to that. We all came from, you know, rough, middle, lower class families. We all were party, drink, yeah. drugs, um, all got in trouble. I know I've been arrested. I know Ryan's been arrested. Father Rich, you probably were almost arrested, but talked your way out of it. That is actually uh, exactly true. <laughs> yeah. You put on that charm. But, you know, all of us, I think, are coming from a very similar place as you, Jim. Um, yeah. So it's really hearing you tell this story. I mean, there's so many things that I hear you say that I'm like, yeah, that happened to me too. Or me too. I, I felt that, you know, I really feel what you're saying. Like, like that, the, the desire that other people see you a certain way when they probably don't even think about you at all, but all this hurt that you have inside of yourself, you're putting it on yourself and it just starts to eat you away or, or you have this conversion, you find God and then you just start putting it further and further away. So, I mean, your story, I mean, I'm sure that there's so many people out there who have had similar yeah. stories. And to hear you tell it, number one, you're great at telling this story, but I think so many people need to hear this, you know? So that's why I'm really excited that, that this book is coming out so that people can really dig into this because um, it's powerful, man. I, I am too. One of the things that really stuck out about your uh, testimony, um, just 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 praying about it while I'm listening is how you you were you saw the face of Christ in others right like you you experienced this god that you didn't know through others and and now you know your your reversion you know through that here now what I'm hearing you say is this this service that's keeping your faith uh, together and after this experience. So you look at like sort of phase one and phase two, what's the difference, right? I look at this difference is now you're that face of Christ that these people see. Obviously you're leading people to Christ himself in the sacraments. But the one of the things that I tell people a lot about ministry is that it's a presence that you offer with, with your faith, right? It, you offer a presence to someone. You don't get to determine. And it's so, it's so funny how you, you wanted your presence to, 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 to bring people into and, and bring love about yourself, right? And you would even go so far as to lie. You know, we all, we all experience that. But now it's like your, your presence and in, in the humility of, of a child of God that you are that offers this window to God now right? That, to, that other people can now see God. And so it's, it's kind of like this whole thing coming full circle where your, your second approach, this grace that occurred, this, this new life that you experienced, how this presence that you experience in others is now being experienced with others. And you don't know what mm. it does. That's the whole thing is like, God doesn't tell you like, Hey, this is what I said to him, or this right. is what happened by you being there. You know, one of the things about, you know, trudging this road is that, you know, it's not our road. It's, it's a road that was set before us by God. And he just, he just tells us what the path is. He does all the work. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and that's, that's that, that layer of humility that we have to have to understand that even if the best thing happens in God's kingdom, I am not responsible. I am just, I'm just a tool that he uses as a child to bring about this, this culture of, uh, of his kingdom, right? This, this only kingdom. God can take these the, this brokenness, the sin, this, mm -hmm. 
these shameful things, right? And take them all and turn them all into assets, right? Mm -hmm. To say, I'm going to use this, all these nasty little things about who you used to be. I'm going to use those to reach others, to glorify me, right? Amen. And that's, only God can do that, right? I don't, I can't do that. I can't, I, I, it just doesn't work that way, right? It's, yeah. you can see through it. It's too, it's too yeah. transparent, right? Yeah. It's, it's about showing and sharing with people the power of, of Christ and what, yeah. and what is possible. And in my, in my line, my, my go-to line is always nothing is too big for God, nothing. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I'm, I, I guess in some ways I'm an example of that, right. That people, I still run into people. I'm 54 years old. I still run into people that have shocked them alive. Right. Yeah. Like, Oh, I thought you dude, I heard you got killed years ago. Right. And, and, and then they see me and they see me in some of the craziest places. I was, uh, I was speaking, I was with Christophonic, uh, up in, uh, in like West Palm beach. And I was giving my testimony and it was the morning. Of, it was the, you know, the morning of before we went in, as I was walking into the church, I look and I see a guy, he's standing in front of me that I knew when I was 13 years old, he worked in the pizza shop that I hung in front of that I was ultimately barred from. Right. And, um, and he, he was standing there and I was like, George, what are you doing here? And he was like, Oh, uh, my wife works here. And I was like, really? And he's like, yeah, my wife works at this church. She's been working here for many years. And, um, he goes, but the crazy thing is she didn't actually tell me that you were going to be here. She was sleeping and she was talking in her sleep. And in her sleep, she said, oh, you know, Jim Wahlberg or Jimbo is going to be speaking at my church or something. <laughs> and he heard her and he was like, are you kidding me? And so the next morning he talked to her about it and, and he was there. And actually I, it was beautiful because it was an opportunity to not only share what God has done in my life, but it was also a, an opportunity for, for us to make amends with each other. Yeah. Right. There was things that I was carrying, uh, uh, you know, uh, resentments that I was carrying towards this guy. And there was certainly resentments that he was carrying towards me. And we were able to there in the presence of God, just to, just to forgive each other. And, and, and now we have a relationship. We are, we're in contact with each other and, uh, and it's a beautiful thing. Great. Awesome. That is so now, beautiful, my brother. I, I gotta, God. I gotta say though, the, um, the whole experience of, where where you kind of grew up in an area and in an environment where people kind of labeled you and and that that judgment that was on you it just perpetuated the path toward destruction mm -hmm. and that destruction was all immersive and you know i'm so glad that you have a relationship with community chinacolo they they have my heart yeah. and soul and and i told mother avira before i went into the seminary to study because she looked at me and she smacked me in the face and she said you know, you're going to be, you're going to be a priest for a community. And I'm like, I just joined the diocese of St. Augustine. I got, I don't know what to do yeah. here. And, uh, you know, to have a saint smack you in the face and, and, and tell you what you need to do with your life. And it's, it's just been a joy, man. The past 18 years of my life with community and in, in various stages and being able to be a support to them. But all of the brothers and sisters have that same immersive experience of being judged and pressured into this way of life that is ultimately so destructive mm -hmm. until you meet Christ and he sets you free. And it's exactly what you said at the beginning. 
the concept of God was consequences, judgment, right? Well, you can't get love through, through judgment. You right. know, like you first have to encounter love. And that's what Ryan Delacroix was saying. That's what you've been sharing in your testimony, what Sheil was saying as well and, and his. You know, we encounter the love of Christ and that changes everything because our whole identity is transformed. And we begin to look at ourselves differently. And I, I totally relate because so many people in my life, you know, they'll say, Father, can I meet your mother? I want to meet your mother. Your mother must have did a fantastic job raising you. I want to learn from her and blah, 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 blah. I want to raise priests in my family. And then I said, I was the furthest thing that you could ever imagine being a priest. My mother never even in a million years could have imagined me becoming a priest at all. And, and Jim, and I, I, I'm sorry, Jim, I actually heard your mother talking once and she said, you know, long time ago, it used to be, oh no, here comes all those Wahlberg boys, right? Yeah. And now it's like, oh, wow. Here comes all those Wahlberg boys. Just how quickly the perception can change when people start making some positive uh, impacts in their own lives and taking responsibility and allowing Christ to take them places that the perception of a troublesome brood of kids getting into all kinds of trouble versus now the kind of people who are leading other men and doing amazing things for society, I think is just powerful testimony. Thank you. And it comes down to a, a, to a real conversion, to a real reversion. And that's what I love about your story, Jim, is that, you know, you saw it through the face of Mother Teresa. You saw Jesus, you know. You, you saw Jesus through your wife's face, reminding you that you saw Jesus in yourself when, mm. when you first got hit with the Holy Spirit. And then that led you back to that reversion of sorts, too. And, right. and that's what we're called to, a constant conversion. We're called to realize our sins before the Lord and take that into confession, the sacrament of reconciliation. We do that constantly. I go to mm -hmm. confession every two to three weeks, not, you know, because I need that in my life. And it's the constant conversion, my brother. And that's what you're, that's what you're living out, which is such a beautiful testimony. And I, well, I really appreciate that. That's hope reborn. And, you know, a shout out to, to Community Chinacolo and the beautiful work that they've been doing. If you want more information on Community Chinacolo, if you know someone that's struggling with a major drug addiction, and we're talking about heavy stuff, or you just need, somebody's really, really in need of, of a community to break away from the culture of destruction, check out hopereborn.org. Hopereborn.org. There is always hope with Christ. Always hope in finding the path. Now, I want to give, you know, we said we would give this, so I want to make sure that we get it in. Um, a couple saints that if you are struggling with addiction or maybe um, know somebody who is, here's some of the saints that you can look at and ask for their intercession. So, uh, Father, you mentioned uh, St. Maximilian Kolbe, uh, powerful intercessor. There's also St. Mark G. Ting Jang. He was a Chinese saint who was addicted to opium opioids and in this country we have a terrible opioid, opioid yes, crisis yeah. uh it's devastating so many communities so uh looking up him i'll put some information about him in the uh, links below uh but the way that he was able to fight his addiction every day of his life because of the desire for the eucharist is really powerful and there's also venerable mark matt talbot um who was had crippling alcoholism, you know, like us guys, you know, he grew up in a rough neighborhood in Dublin. And before he was even 12 years old, he was drinking every day, you know? Um, but then he got just, you know, wool struck by God and gave up the drink. And then for the rest of his life, atoned for all the things that he had done while he was drinking. So mm. venerable Matt Talbot, another great one for 
people struggling with addiction, particularly alcohol. And then also another one, we mentioned AA. Um, I don't know if you guys knew this, but AA was actually uh, one of the people who helped really get its inception and its founding was a Catholic nun, uh, Sister Mary Ignatia, who was from Cleveland, Ohio, my hometown. Mm-hmm. Um, she was there in the beginning with Dr. Bob. She at uh, St. Vincent Charity Hospital uh, right in downtown Cleveland. Uh, helped to establish some of the first programs for alcoholics um, that treats them holistically, both as a physical illness and addiction, but also spiritually. So those three people, um, you know, was, and with the community Chinacolo and um, Cabrita, Conchita uh, Cabrera. Conchita Cabrera. Um, and I got to say a big shout out, out to my, to my girl, man, St. Rita. St. Rita is a powerhouse, man. And yeah. she's an incredible saint to pray to. Uh, you know, she's the saint of impossible causes along with St. Jude as well. Um, she has come through in many, many, many different occasions. And obviously St. Faustina, who has shown her hand in my life so often. We need mercy. Our culture Amen. needs mercy. Our families need mercy. We need to be merciful to each other. We need to support each other, not judge each other. And, and that's what, you know, Mother Teresa, Mother Teresa said that very, very, very clearly you know, don't judge people because if you judge people, you have no time to love them. You know, we need to love each other. We need to really be there for each other. And that's what being a community is all about, placing judgment aside and supporting each other on the path of hope. Now, before we go, Jim, now, um, you know, we talked about opioids. I know that there's two things. Um, so number one, you have, there's a film coming out that you're involved with. Right. And then you're also your work with the, um, Mark Wahlberg Foundation as the executive okay. director. Uh, before we go, why don't you tell everybody about those two projects and what they should know about them? Okay. So um, about uh, 10 years ago, uh, this opioid epidemic really started to like rear its head around me. I started to know people that were losing their children. And, and so um, as a person in recovery, I felt sort of like it was an obligation to be part of a conversation. And so uh, we made a film, uh, my first film on addiction, uh, which was called If Only. And um, we made the film and my plan was make the film, go back about my business and I made my contribution. And ultimately what ended up happening was uh, while shooting that film in St. William's Church in Tewksbury, Massachusetts, I came in direct contact with about 250 moms that had to bury their children. And, uh, you know, uh, I became overwhelmed with guilt that the thought that I was just going to be able to walk away. Right. And that, uh, that, you know, I needed to do more. And so what I did was we made this film and, um, I said, uh, you know, I said, God, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make a deal with you. Right. Like we all do. Right. Everyone wants to make a deal with God. My deal was, I'm not going to go out and, and market myself or market this movie or do any of that. But if people ask, I'll just say yes, right? I'll just trust you. I'll say yes, and we'll see what happens. Well, I've shown that film to about 250,000 people. I'm on wow. tour with the DEA. We do events with 10,000 kids per event. Um, it's, it's really resonated uh, with people. And since then, I've made a number of additional films. Uh, but at a certain point, I knew that my journey was with Christ. And so I needed to make a, a, a film that was a faith-based film, right? So I made a film called What About the Kids 
The film What About the Kids is, uh, it's about a, a, a Catholic faithful family and their struggle with the opioid crisis. And they actually, uh, it's the grandparents lose their daughter-in-law to an overdose and their son ends up in treatment and they end up with custody of their uh, eight-year-old granddaughter. And so this, there's the struggle between grandma and her son, which is the dad of this little girl. And it's always related to faith. It's always related to God. It's always, you know, the son is always pushing back. And ultimately in the film, what ends up happening is, is the granddaughter, the grandfather and the grandmother are all home praying for dad to just pray. That's all. That's all I want him to do. Just pray. Just trust in God. And ultimately, he, he, become, he gets beaten into a state of reasonableness where he has no other way to look but towards God. And um, we made the film. We shot 95% of it on, on Catholic property here in South Florida. Uh, Archbishop Wenske's in the movie. We had priests on set every day praying over us, praying over our equipment. We had access to the Blessed Sacrament every day. We had daily Mass. I mean, we did... We did it the way it needs to be done in order for, in my mind, to be considered a real faith-based film. And so um, we did both the film and my book, uh, The Big Hustle, with Our Sunday Visitor, right? And uh, ultimately, I was introduced to them so that I could go and talk to them about writing a book. A friend of mine's on their board, and I went with the script in my hand, and I said, I'll write the book. But I think we need to make a movie. I think you need to get into the new millennium. I think you're standing on the platform watching the train go by. You need this, you need this tool to reach people. You need visuals to reach people. And so uh, I can't begin to even try to explain to you how great of a partner they have been uh, throughout this process. Uh, the film comes out in September. Uh, the book comes out on August 7th. It's available now. They tell me to tell you these things. It's available now on Amazon pre-orders. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and I'll make sure uh, I put a link to that so that you can pre-order that please book. Please do. Uh, please below. do. And I do want to share with you, um, because it's important to me, is uh, my, my dear friend Jim Caviezel wrote the forward in my book. And um, I sent him the book. And, and I called him two months later. And I was like, hey, Jim, what's up, buddy? What do you think about that forward? And he goes, uh, did you send the book? He never opened the email. I, I, he opened the email, thank God, and uh, him and his wife read the book together. And he called me, I don't know, three or four times while he was reading the book, um, twice in tears. And just, he said, this, this story just touches me because I know you, but I don't know any of this about you, right? Like your honesty and your openness and what Christ has done for you and continues to do for you is just, it's beautiful. And, and, you know, he said, who else has read the book? And I said, nobody, nobody else has read the book. You're the only person that's read the book. And he was like, I like it. And now, and then Christophonic actually just read the book too. And he wrote a, he wrote a review, which was, uh, was humbling to say the least. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. I mean, if, if the story that you shared with us today is any indication yeah. of, of the depth of this book. I mean, this thing is going to be very powerful. So very excited about that. Um, so yeah, Jim, I mean, we're just, you know, really grateful to have had you uh, for this episode and 
for your candidness and, and for the testimony that you were willing to share. I mean, uh, not a lot of people, even when they are able to come out on the other side of these things, really has the, I guess, the grit to allow it to impact other people by being so vulnerable, having the strength to be vulnerable enough to share it. So, again, you know, sharing this with our listeners and with us, uh, can't thank you enough. Thank yeah. you. I appreciate that. Appreciate Very that. kind of you to say. And, and I look forward to seeing you guys in person now because this is, we're seeing a light at the end of the tunnel now, right? So That's right. we'll be out moving around again and we'll be able to be at least within six feet of each other soon. Uh, <laughs> so I'd love to come and, and be in studio with you guys and really like talk. Dive into some stuff. Well, yeah, you know, man. this whole thing is for us. We're going to be actually moving down to uh, Florida. And let's first love time. Yeah. We're moving That's to Florida a very here. quick. It's yeah. a very quick ride from Fort Lauderdale to, to Jacksonville. I used I've to have taken to do it, it all many, the time. Many, many, many times. <laughs> Absolutely. And guess, and guess where we need to go. Oh, we yes, we do. Yeah. 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 Yep. That's right. That's right. Excellent. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, Jim, we, we thank you so much for sharing so openly as, as Ryan Shield just mentioned, it takes an act of fortitude, which is one of the gifts of the Holy spirit to be able to open your soul up and do the work that God's entrusted to you. Much love, much prayers to the Wahlberg family and to your family and to your wife, really, who is a really a, a, a powerful sacrament to mm. uh, reignite your marriage, reignite your journey in Christ. Amen. And, you know, I can't wait to learn more about your journey and, and reading that book and, and definitely checking out that film in September. So make sure you follow, uh, follow us on all of our social media pages so that you see our posts, especially for Jim Wahlberg's materials and the work that he's doing. Be sure to visit us at catholictalkshow.com. There you'll be able to see every way that you can listen in or view our content. And be sure if, you, if this has touched your heart in any way, please consider being a financial contributor by going to patreon.com forward slash the Catholic talk show. And there you'll see every way that you could support us to ensure shows just like this will continue far into the future. And we want to thank our patrons for supporting us thus far and all of our sponsorships and God bless you to all of our, our, our fans and, and the people that journey with us each and every week. We'll see you next week.